Welcome back, warriors and peacekeepers, to the Hemingwayless podcast, the best podcast ever. We're talking about book one, chapter three of War and Peace. We're going to discuss it. We're going to pick it apart. We're going to analyze it before we move on. And then in the second half of this podcast, I will be reading chapter four, audiobook style, as per usual. Uh, I'm saying this all very nice and clearly because we have about 500 or more new members today, since yesterday, in uh, A Year of War and Peace. There was a post that's kicked off over at r slash books and directed a lot of traffic over this way. So we've got a lot of newbies and I welcome you. The more the merrier. So what you got to do, guys, if you haven't already done this, is catch up on the last few chapters, get up to speed with us, and then continue one chapter per day for the rest of the year. And it's good to have you on board. Um, I'll just briefly say how the podcast works, um, by the way, for the newbies. You probably already figured this out. But what I do is um, I read through the discussion forum for yesterday's chapter, all the uh, comments that we had about it and all the discussion. And I kind of interact with them and, and, you know, that's my way of describing what happened in the previous chapter, making sure everyone's got a nice clear picture in their head before we move on. And then I will read audiobook style the next chapter. And what that means is if you want to just sort of listen along to the podcast um, to be part of it, like you don't actually want to physically read the book, you can just listen to it as an audiobook, but you still get 24 hours every day to comment on the chapter. Um, and then those comments, your comments, will be part of the next podcast. So it's pretty cool. It's kind of an interactive podcast. If you listen and then make some comments, you'll find that you'll be part of the next episode. It's pretty fun. All right, so <clears throat> with all that aside, here's the discussion prompts for Chapter 3. We met Ippolit. What did you reckon? The Viscount tells a very interesting story. Napoleon passes out in the company of an enemy. The enemy spares his life. His reward is death. Why is the Viscount telling this story? And here comes Andre. Get ready for Turk slash JD levels of bromance. Now, one thing I'll point out here. Three times in this novel, out of all the 365 chapters, a slightly annoying thing happens. But it only happens three times, so it's no big deal. Um, in the Maud translation, they decided to end a couple of chapters in slightly different spots from in the original. So if you're reading Maud, you'll be thinking, wait, we never met Andre. But you do meet Andre in like the last paragraph of this chapter. But if you're reading Maud, that chapter gets cut off slightly early. Um, it's a little bit annoying, but it only happens, like I said, three times in the whole year. I think it's three, maybe it's even only two. Uh, and it all and all of those happen right at the start of the book, I'm pretty sure. So um, it's a bit confusing. You might be wondering why your chapter seems to end in a different spot to everyone else's. That's why. Don't fuss about it. It's all good. Just keep moving at, at the normal pace and it'll all line up again within a, you know, within the next chapter. It's all good. Cool? Capiche? Awesome. All right. War and Kvothi said this. I immediately took a liking to Prince Andre with his visible annoyance with everyone as soon as he entered the room. I feel like it would be monotonous to attend these gatherings where everyone is essentially putting on a show. I'm wondering if his boredom with his lifestyle is pushing him to join the war, just to get away from it all. 
I'm also under the impression that he's relieved with Pierre being there because Pierre is someone who doesn't put on an act. It seems like someone who says what he thinks. I also liked how Anna immediately homed in on Pierre and the Abbot's conversation for taking for talking too animatedly and naturally. So she puts cold water on it by bringing them to the rest of the group. How a conversation being too natural is something that she doesn't like was funny to me. In comparison to Pierre's naturalness in conversation, I also enjoyed Tolstoy's description of Helena's participation, or lack thereof. She just focuses on straightening out her outfits and jewellery and then mimics Anna's reactions, or just results, Resert, re, re, reverts to smiling. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Helena's funny in this chapter, the way she just kind of, she kind of doesn't even know how to conduct herself other than to just, you know, have a default smile and like copy the reactions of the other ladies around her sort of thing. It's, um, it's, it's kind of funny. A Will 109 said, I also enjoyed how Anna immediately hones in on Pierre and the Abbott's conversation, probably because of its political nature being so intriguing to me. The groundwork Tolstoy is doing in setting the political scene of this novel is notable, with this entire chapter between the conversation of the Viscount's story about Napoleon seemingly devoted towards furthering our knowledge of the contemporary political backdrop of the time period. Being someone who loves European history, it's exciting to see how readily Tolstoy is engaging his characters with the power dynamics of the time period. It may be worth noting that Anna's dicks dislike of such natural discussion could be emblematic of a more isolationist approach many people of the time had towards Russian involvement of world affairs given to the topic of Pierre and the Abbott's conversation was indeed Russia's role in the world balance of power um yeah like, I'm reading that I think you know more about European history than me <laughs> but um I think you're right like there was a very big um uh what do I say? There, there was a there was a theme, a big theme in the book, of like what should Russia be doing during all this? Is it what you know? Is it up to the Russians to try to save the world or, or stay out of it or that kind of thing? Apikaliakso said Tolstoy's comparison of the Viscount and the Abbot, two prominent members of society, to weird meat was very funny and quite evocative. Yeah, that was a good uh, little analogy. Anna Pavlovna was obviously serving him up as a great treat to her guest as a clever maitre d'hotel served up a special choice delicacy of piece of meat that no one has, had seen it in the kitchen would have cared to eat. So Anna Pavlovna served up to her guests, the Viscount and the Abbot, as peculiarly choice morsels. Year of War and Peace said, Not sure what to think of Ippolit yet, but he hasn't done anything yet to in to counter the early impression of him we got from his father. I liked this line about him because of the self-confidence with which he spoke. No one could tell whether he had said something very clever or very stupid. <laughs> it's a great way to sum up someone like that. <clears throat> someone who's just a complete drongo and dope, but there's almost like a weird way that that works for them. And you just wonder, are they actually like a genius? <laughs> or are they a complete moron? hard to tell sometimes. Dana Udu said, in this chapter, I enjoyed the subtle way in which the narrator accentuates the body and body movements. The characters are described insisting on their features, age, gender, weight, grimaces. Every description, even describing the Vicomte as a piece of meat is an extreme and comical rendering of the very realistic and fleshy approach to this chapter. 
Everything about Elena belongs to the body and senses, smile, her dress, even how Helena is self-absorbed in her own body image, looking at her own arm and jewellery as the Vicomte is telling the story, experiencing the environment through her body, the pressure of her arm on the table. Ippolit's body and face are tributary to his seemingly unpleasant personality. And Entree's entrance is also presented along with description of his body and demeanour, and his first interactions are seen through his own point of view. Screwing up his eyes, he scanned the whole company. Um... I love how it said, wait, is it Ippolit? Yeah, it is Ippolit, who's got like the same face as Helena. But while on Helena, it's a beautiful face, you know, sitting atop her beautiful feminine features and her body. But on Ippolit, it's like hideously ugly. I really like that. Um, Zukov's in there with his usual um, comparison of different lines from different translations. I might skip that today Zukov I do really appreciate it but um just for the sake of you know I'm not going to read it every single day I think just because it does take a while to read and you know I've got to keep moving along but I really appreciate what you do um Brett Peterson said I enjoy your comparisons I will suggest it might be fun to add the Bogan translation that Andrew Lewis is working on and reading in his podcast <laughs> I can do that for you right now I'll read the Maud and then I'll read my one Pierre, who from the moment Prince Andrew... Oh, wait, that's in a different chapter. We haven't even up to that yet. All right, what was it? um, Because of the weird way that it's split. Um, Okay, Pierre, who from the moment Prince Andrew entered the room had watched what was watching him with glad, affectionate eyes, now came up and took his arm. Before he looked around, Prince Andrew frowned again, expressing his annoyance with whoever was touching his arm... But when he saw Pierre's beaming face, he gave him an unexpectedly kind and pleasant smile. Um, Here we go. Pierre, who had been watching Prince André from the moment he entered the room with affectionate eyes, came over and took him by the arm. Prince André rolled his eyes and sighed, then turned to scowl at whomever had snatched his arm, but when he saw Pierre's shit-eating grin, he changed his tune entirely and returned the grin with equal amounts of shit-eatingness. There you go. (laughs) That's my take on it. I really am a silly person. All right, let's continue. Shit-eatingness. Retail Haitian said, Ippolit, people seem to like him, or at least tolerate him, even though by description he seems pretty terrible kind of a buffoon, maybe a little skeevy and not handsome or charming enough to make up for his faults. The story about Napoleon is definitely propaganda. I think there's probably a really taste a real taste for like propaganda and just sort of military gossip at that point. So I think you're probably right. Uh continuing right along, let's me let me see here. What else we got? Jaw uh Gurgi's Assembly said, one thing from the Russian perspective, the abbot urges Russia, a powerful but barbaric state, to join a union aimed at saving Europe. I think Tolstoy wanted to provide a brilliant summary of views typical for many Europeans, namely that Russia is definitely not part of Europe, but it must selflessly sacrifice itself for the good of Europe. This is coming from a guy who sought shelter in Russia, the Viscount. By the way, did anyone pay attention to the old lady in tears? In tears. See, Tetris theme song points this out. You mean the one sitting by the aunt? More translation 
says she has a thin, careworn face, but doesn't say she's in tears. Gurji says that in um, their translation, it said tear-stained face. Yeah, I think it might be implying that she's not crying at the moment, but like her face has been sort of marked with years of, of sadness, maybe. All right, continuing. Four lost souls in a bowl said any other first-timers here with the text would refer to Lisa by name instead of always the little princess, especially in the middle of paragraphs talking about Princess Elena. It's very confusing. <laughs> yeah, you do get very... Uh, you have to get used to the naming conventions in this book. Don't worry, you will get your head around it. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, it is a bit of a learning curve at the start. The little princess is typically uh, Lisa. Everyone's a prince or a princess, by the way, in, in War and Peace in these times. It didn't mean what it means now. Like, the prince or princess isn't like the son of the king. It's just sort of like the title for someone who's um, an aristocrat, <laughs> pretty much. Someone who's up there. Um, favorite sentence says, Fluffernutter for life. He spoke with such self-confidence that his hearers could not be sure whether what he said was very witty or very stupid. <laughs> and Solanumbatarasum said, finally, a character I can identify with. Yeah, I feel like that too, actually. <laughs> I'm right on, the, right on the precipice between a complete idiot and someone who's got half a brain. Um, Artless Calamity said, thank you to the mods. Been waiting a long time to tackle this book. I just randomly discovered this subreddit today, but most of my books are in storage, so I don't have my copy on hand. Instead, I started reading the public domain Maud one to see how I felt. And you know, it's not bad at all. I breezed through the first three chapters and then read them again, just to get the names right. I'm digging this idea of doing one chapter per day. Yeah, stick with it, Artless Calamity. Like it, it does, it's, it's sometimes you want to rush ahead. And there's some chapters that'll leave you on a cliffhanger, and it's very tempting to to plow forward. But I would say stick with the stick with us. We're going to march in line, one chapter per day, and it is. At times it's slow, but at other times it's very very rewarding. So it's worth doing. Um, it just becomes habitual, right? Whereas if you march forward, and then it's like, okay, do I do I have a few days off and wait up or or what? You know, but. Um, I don't know, there's something really satisfying about it, having it just be a little part of every day. Um, what was I saying here? So far, the most inter interesting characters for me are Anna. I love characters with socialite machinations. And Pierre, who I can sense will be a main character. One, because of Anna's unique fascination or fear towards him. And two, because he's the outsider type and literature loves an outsider. The way Anna immediately immediately tries to quell Pierre's animated way of speaking, sets him up as someone with an intense energy boiling beneath the surface. Also, it's been a while since I studied the history, but I'm interested in how the character's political ideas will change during the novel in Russia's alliances, as Russia's alliances shift around. But I'm not sure yet what time period is covered other than the starting point of 1805. Yeah, it's funny to talk about the history and what happened with Russia over the next sort of, you know, decade since... 1805, which is sort of roughly the time period of the novel, because it is a real part of history. And when he wrote this book, it was only 50 years previous. So um, it was recent enough history that 
it was common knowledge. So to know what happens isn't really a spoiler. Excuse me. <clears throat> In that sense. But then again, like, I didn't really know what happened the first time I read War and Peace. So I found out how, you know, what happened to Russia during that time by reading the book. And to have that extra element of a mystery is kind of cool. So I would say if you don't know your history of Russia or what happened to Napoleon when he invaded Russia, maybe keep it keep it that way and, and let the book tell you. And that adds a little bit of extra intrigue for you. Um, all right, where are we going? Ship pieces. Just to be clear, the Viscount is Mortemart, right? And he's French. But what is he doing in Russia since they're enemies? Along with the Amorio, are we supposed to know context about them already? Yeah, so they're en to say they're enemies is weird. Like, Russia at that time had borrowed so much from France in terms of how their aristocracy worked and and their culture. And, you know, they even speak French in Russia, the, the aristocrats. And, um, and what am I saying? Oh, and even us, um, there's young characters who are Russian, but they're military heroes. The person that the reason they want to go to war at all is because they admire Bonaparte, you know, they admire Napoleon, even though he's sort of the leader of the enemies, they just, they love him. And so it's this weird thing, which feels very real to me as well. It's like, they are the enemies but there's also this massive respect between them it's not it's not like pure hatred and loathing it's quite strange um Corsio said after the french revolution many aristocrats and supporters of the bourbon kings emigrated from france russian government at this moment is against napoleon but it welcomes supporters of the bourbons there you go a little bit extra context um, Ippolit seems even worse than Pierre, says Brett Peterson. Oh, he's definitely, uh, I think, dumber, <laughs> is what you'd say. I wonder why Anna Pavlovna wasn't worried about him, unless she was, but the book just didn't tell us about it. The story is interesting. He starts out saying that Napoleon had a good reason for executing the other guy, but this story doesn't seem to back that up at all. Andre is an interesting character. He has the most lovely wife, but... He seems bored of everything except his old friend Pierre. He needs to learn to appreciate what he has instead of chasing an adrenaline rush or he's going to end up dead and his wife will be the hottest widow in the town. <laughs> All right. That's our discussion done for today. Um, now, I, I'm reading my version to you guys, as you probably know by now, and... Chapter 3 ended slightly shorter, so um, where we ended the reading yesterday, Prince Andre hadn't arrived yet, so the reading today is going to talk about him arriving. bit confusing because we've just read a whole bunch of comments about, you know, Pierre having arrived. So yeah, just so you know, it's a little bit out of whack. Um, before I go on to the reading, I will say this, um, you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. Uh, always appreciate a little tip here and there. So um, if you want to support the podcast, I appreciate that. Also, I am doing my daily hangouts as I work on my Aussie slang version of War and Peace, my daily little habit. Um, I'm spending a couple of hours working on that every day. So you guys are welcome to hang out with me while I do it via the daily um, live stream 
the daily War and Peace hangout. You'll find a link for that in the description of the daily discussion. Okie dokie. <clears throat> Let's continue, shall we? Chapter 4. Just then, Prince Andre rocked up to Anna's joint. He was the pregnant Sheila's hubby. Like his missus, he was pretty good looking himself. Tall, clean shaven, a bit of a yobbo, and with a slight case of tall poppy syndrome. He evidently knew everyone in the drawing room, but in stark contrast to his wife, it seemed he couldn't be bothered with any of them, carrying, out, carrying on like a pack of galahs. Just the look of them was enough to give him a splitting headache. And of all the faces he couldn't be bothered looking at or talking with, there was one face that he really couldn't be bothered with, that of his beautiful, lively little wife. He turned away from her with a grimace that distorted his handsome features, kissed Anna Pavlovna's hand, then squinted his eyes as he scanned the faces in the room. So you're off to the war, are you, Prince? said Anna Pavlovna. General Kutuzov, said Bolkonsky, speaking in French and stressing the syllable of the name like a Frenchman would, is taking me on as his aide-de-camp. And what'll Lisa do? Oh, she's going to the country. Oh, how dare you deprive us of your beautiful wife. André, said his wife, addressing her husband in the same flirty way she spoke to other men. The Viscount's been telling us this crazy-ass story about Mademoiselle George and Bonaparte. Prince André screwed up his face and turned away. Pierre, who had been watching Prince André from the moment he entered the room with affectionate eyes, came over and took him by the arm. Prince André rolled his eyes and sighed then turned to scowl at whomever had snatched his arm. But when he saw Pierre's shit-eating grin, he changed his tune entirely and returned the grin with equal amounts of shit-eatingness. "'No way, Pierre, mate, what are you doing here?' said he to Pierre. "'I knew you'd be here,' replied Pierre. "'I'll come get some supper with you. What do you reckon?' he added in a low voice so as not to bother the Viscount who was still telling his story. "'Nope, impossible.' said Prince André, laughing and pressing Pierre's hand to show that there was no need to ask such a question. He was about to say something else, too, but at that moment Prince Vasily and his daughter got up to leave, and they had to move aside for them. I count, sorry, mate, we've got a nick off, said Prince Vasily to the Frenchman, holding his arm down against the chair in a friendly way, as if to say, don't get up. Gotta get to that bloody fate at the ambassadors, otherwise we'd be, we'd stay for sure. Sorry to take off so early, he said, turning to Anna Pavlovna. His daughter, Princess Helena, passed through the chairs, lightly holding up the folds of her dress. Her smile was gorgeous, lighting up the room like a big old light bulb that didn't exist yet. Pierre gawked at her like an absolute drongo. His eyes widened with rapture and terror as she passed him. Stunning, eh? said, Princess on said Prince André. Flukyashosha! muttered Pierre unintelligibly. As he came through, Prince Vasily grabbed Pierre by the hand and said to Anna Pavlovna, teach this idiot some manners, will you? He's been staying with me a month now and this is the first time I've seen him in society. Young bucks need the society of clever women. It's the most important thing for them. Anna Pavlovna smiled and promised to take Pierre under her wing. She knew Pierre's father was an associate of Prince Vasily's. The elderly lady who had been sitting with Anna's aunt 
suddenly shot up from her seat and snaked through the room ahead of Prince Vasily, as if trying to beat him to the anteroom. Her face suddenly went from all exaggeratedly interested and friendly to anxious and fearful. Uh, Prince Vasily, do you have a sec? she said, hurrying alongside him. It's about my boy, Boris. I can't stay in Petersburg any longer, so tell me, what news can I take back to my poor Boris? Prince Vasily realised immediately that he'd just trod in dog shit, and turned bitterly to see the dog shit in question, the elderly lady beside him, who despite his look of pure scorn gave him a friendly and appealing smile and took his hand so he couldn't escape. Fuck's sake, he muttered under his breath. What would it cost you to put in a good word for Boris next time you see the Emperor? Then Boris will be transferred to the guards, no problem, she said. Trust me, Princess, I'll do everything I possibly can for your boy, answered Prince Vasily. But it's tricky, you know, to ask the Emperor for favours. Why don't you see if Prince Golitsyn can ask Rumyenstev for you? I reckon you'd be better off trying that. The elderly piece of dog shit that was thoroughly stuck to Vasily's shoe was Princess Drubetskaya, belonging to a real posh family, one of the best families in Russia, but she was poor, so ew. And because of her poorness, she hadn't been in society for a long time and had lost her vast network of influential connections. She had taken the journey to Petersburg for one reason only, to get her son Boris a gig in the guards. In fact, it was only in the hopes of speaking to Prince Vasily that she'd chased down an invitation to Anna Pavlovna's reception and had patiently suffered through the Viscount's story. Listen here, you little... Prince Vasily's words had scared her, and for just a second her face went all bitter and bitchy, but quickly she checked herself, smiled, and clutched his arm more tightly. Listen to me, my prince, she said sweetly. I've never asked you for anything, have I? And I never will again, I promise. And have I ever reminded you of my father's friendship for you? Uh, Don't say anything. The answer is no, I haven't. But now I ask you, please, for God's sake, do this one tiny thing for my son and I'll always regard you as a benefactor, she added hurriedly. No, hey, don't get pissy, just promise me. I've actually already asked Golitsyn and he was a dick about it. So I need you to be the stand-up, true bloody blue legend that I know you are and help me, she said trying to smile, though tears were in her eyes. "'Dad, we're going to be late,' said Princess Helena, turning her banging hot head to look over her banging hot shoulder as she stood waiting by the door. Influence in society, however, is a currency which has to be economised if it is to last. Prince Vasily learned this long ago, and at that time decided that if he went around asking for favours on behalf of all the bastards that begged him to, He'd soon be unable to ask for favours for himself, and so he was a stingy bugger when it came to using his influence. But in Princess Dogshit Drubetskaya's case, he felt, after her second appeal, something like a crisis of conscience. She had just reminded him, not so subtly, that her father had given his career a massive leg up many years ago. More to the point, he could tell she was the kind of nosy old bitch he called them mothers, with the mongrel dogged tenacity to harp on and on at you for days on end, hour after hour, until you eventually yielded. She might even, heaven forbid, cause a scene. That last bit, the whole causing of a scene thing, played on his mind. My dear Anna Mikhailovna, 
said he with his usual blasé turn tone. <clears throat> it's pretty much impossible to do what you're asking, but because I'm a good bloke and out of respect for your father's memory, I will do the impossible. I'll pull some strings and get your son transferred to the guards. Here is my hand on it. Satisfied? Oh, my dear benefactor, yes, this is the Prince Vasily, I know. You really are a legend. He turned to leave. Wait, though, one more thing. Once he's been transferred to the guards, she faltered, you're mates with Michael Ilarionovich Kutuzov, aren't you? Recommend Boris to him as adjutant. Then I'll be happy. And then Prince Vasily smiled. Nah, look, I'm not going to promise that. Kutuzov's been pestered about this kind of stuff non-stop since being appointed commander-in-chief. He was just telling me the other day how all the ladies in Moscow have conspired to give him all their sons as adjutants. Oh, come on, promise me, though, I won't let you go, my dear benefactor. Daddy, said his banging hot daughter in the same tone as before, we're totally going to be late. Ah, you heard the lady, gotta go, nice to see you. So tomorrow you'll speak to the emperor, though, yeah? Yeah, I will, but I'm not making any promises about Kutuzov, understand? Oh, no, do promise, please, Vasily, cried Anna Mikhailovna as he went, with a very flirty smile a smile that once long ago probably came naturally and suited her face, but now did not at all suit her ugly old face. Apparently she'd forgotten for a moment she was an old bag now, and by some ancient force of habit tried to call upon her feminine charms, but as soon as the prince had gone her face resumed its usual cold and artificial expression. She returned to the group, where the Viscount was still talking, and again she pretended to listen while waiting till the proper time to leave. Her mission had been accomplished. All right. There we go, another chapter down. <laughs> I forgot that I called her a nosy old bitch. <clears throat> I think there was a reason why I went for that wording, because it sounds so harsh when I read it back. But I think Tolstoy... Oh, yeah, and he said something about her being a mother. I was like, whoa, that's harsh. I don't think mothers are nosy old bitches. There was something about the way that the original was worded, where it made it seem like Tolstoy was saying that um, or at least Prince Andre thought that mothers were particularly nosy or, you know, annoying. So I, I just kind of leaned into it and boganified it a little bit. Anyway, I hope you got a chuckle from all that. Um, <laughs> I know I did. Uh, thanks very much for listening, guys. I'll see you tomorrow.